Thank you for joining us for the Lessons from First Naz podcast. I think we should keep church weird. What do you say, huh? Over the course of the last few weeks, we've been uh, looking at what it means, these weird things that the church does. And because we live in the Northwest, we, we know that the word weird is important to some people in this country. Portland intends to stay weird, right? Uh, the city of Austin, Texas was the first city to declare itself weird, whatever it meant by that. Their culture different than all the rest of the cities in Texas. They liked it that way, so they said, keep Texas weird. The people in Portland said, well, we're weirder than you are, and we're certainly weirder than everybody else in Oregon. And we all said, exactly. And so we let Portland decide to be weird, and they get to stay weird because they're working on that. And then the city of Missoula, Montana. We didn't think anything in Montana was weird. We didn't think they allowed weird in Montana. But the city of Missoula said, we want to be weird too. And I've been to Missoula, a little bit weird, okay? And uh, they intend to stay that way, so uh, they've, they've printed bumper stickers. I think that's really all this is, bumper stickers and T-shirts. But uh, these cities have said that they are weird, they're proud of it, and they're going to stay that way. The Church of Jesus Christ is weird. We stand out in this world. What I'm uh, finding as time goes by, however, is that we are weird in some wonderful ways, and then there's some ways where we just need to stop being weird, Right? I mean, we need, to, we need to stop being weird in a number of ways that are unnecessarily hurtful and confusing to the world around us. But we also need to be purposely weird in some ways that cause wonder and that help people see the truth and help people experience the love of God. And so throughout this fall, we're kind of working our way through some of the weird practices of the church and saying, what are some things that are essential weirdness? What are, what are some of the things that the church does that's different than, than the rest of the world? Let's remind ourselves why we do them. Why remind ourselves? Because we failed to do that for a generation or two. And because of that, an awful lot of young people who grew up in the church were well acquainted with the weird, but not with the why. And because of that, they just looked at the weird, and no young person wants to be weird. They want to be loved. They want to be accepted. They want to be included. And when they saw things that about being a part of the church that they did not understand and that did not seem important enough for us to explain them, they just discarded those things, and many of them discarded church as well. We've lost a generation in the church, largely, because we were either the wrong kind of weird or the right kind of weird, but didn't remind ourselves why we do what we do. We're going to take care of that this fall. It's also the case that the world around us, many of whom now have a whole generation have grown up without any kind of involvement in the church, and they have never heard a reasonable explanation of why the church is the way that it is and why it does the things that it, that it does. And because of that, with, with, when, when their only source of information is former bitter members of the church or those who drifted away because we didn't explain... When that's their only source of why is the church weird, many of them have said, I don't want anything to do with the church or with Christianity. When people who, who confuse um, faith and politics decide to use faith to beat people into their politics, for some reason, people get kind of standoffish about that, and they don't want anything to do with the church. So I think it's very important that we not only remind ourselves why it is that the church does the weird things that it does, but that we also, I think, owe the world around us an explanation of the good kind of weird that we choose to remain so that we can faithfully show them the love of God. You with me in this? Good, good. Well, we've taken a look at... um, you know, why go to church? We've taken a look at the weirdness of sermons and sermonizers. We've, we've taken a look at that weird practice of every time the, the church gathers, we go, hey, give us your money. 
We talked about that last week. If you want some more uh, um, information on why it is that we do any of those things, you can check out uh, firstnas.com, go to the media page, or you can just go to Cliff Purcell, me, my Facebook page, and search videos, because every one of the sermons that I preach ends up uh, on my Facebook page. Uh, hi, Facebook people. We have Facebook people with us every Sunday as well. Uh, hundreds of people from around the world who join us. So they join us live, or you can look up those uh, sermons that you missed over, over the last few weeks. But today, I want to acquaint you with another one of the uh, weird practices of the church. And you, you, you may have noticed, if you've looked here toward the front and your sight lines work, that sitting here on the, on the altar are two large, tall stacks of chrome-ish kind of plates. And if you've been around the church much, you know what's inside there. And if it's your first time here, you're thinking, what on earth have I gotten myself into? Because that looks like a ritual about to happen. Yeah, uh-huh. You're right. You're right. It's, it's a ritual. It's a ceremony of the church. And I think that uh, it would be a good thing for us to remind ourselves why it is that we participate in the Lord's Supper. And, and if you're listening or watching today and you don't know what the, what the Lord's Supper is all about, we sure wish you were here with us where you could experience it for real, but maybe I can help you understand a little bit about why it is that we do this and why it is so precious to us and why it is that as long as there is a church of Jesus Christ in this world, her people will continue to participate in the Lord's Supper. We are going to do this until he comes back for us, right? Right. Good. Well, let's talk about it a little bit. Uh, there was a period in the life of Jesus that we read about in the Bible where the pressures were mounting in his life. He had started off with this obscure kind of uh, rural existence growing up, just a little, another little boy in another little village in another little uh, uh, corner of Israel just going about his life. We, we, we read almost nothing about his childhood because much of it apparently really didn't stand out and seemed to make a big difference to the people around him. His early adulthood, we read nothing about that. He apparently was living like a rather ordinary human being, unremarkable in a number of ways through, through much of his life. But when he was about 30 years old, something happened in his understanding of himself and of the Father's will and of time where he flipped a switch in his life and he entered into public ministry and he went through Another ceremony that we'll talk about uh, here in a couple of weeks. He went through baptism. And at that moment, there was this incredible disruption of this visible, physical world in which it seems that the heavens parted and God himself spoke and entered in a visible way into this world and said, that's my boy. And I love him. And I'm proud of him. And you should listen to him. And Jesus received the power of God's Holy Spirit. Jesus, the very Son of God, also received his Holy Spirit. And the next thing we know, after he comes up out of the waters, he says, not, hey, time to get famous, but time to get lost. And he and the Spirit wandered off into the wilderness. And there he went through a time of, of, of self-imposed self deprivation. He fasted. And he prayed. But guess what? As he deprived his body of needs, he found that his spirit was being filled up. And God, the Holy Spirit, and even angels came and took care of him. 
When he came back from that test, his body may have been a little bit weak. Boy, his spirit was strong. And he began to speak and to perform miracles that made everybody who heard of him want to hear a little bit more about him. And and many wanted to come and meet him. And so Jesus started having some 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 looky-loos who would just kind of show up wherever he was, and some others who, who pressed past those folks and came in close and said, hey, uh, are, you, uh, are you accepting friends? And uh, Jesus oftentimes said to people, hey, I want to follow you. He'd look them in the eye and say, I don't think you've got what it takes. But then he would pick some other people who didn't think they had what it takes, and he said, you, come and follow me. And he put together this band of students who, uh, who were not only learning things that he said, but learning from, the, from his very self and his very presence. And they began to follow him around. And, and he was teaching, and they'd say, yeah, but you're not teaching us enough, and you're not teaching us fast enough, so why don't you teach us how to pray so that we can talk to God like you do? Why don't you teach us how to cast out demons? Because we, we see people suffering too. And Jesus entered into this, this public phase of his ministry, and there was just like this, this groundswell of popularity and of, of spiritual power, too, that was sort of like this wave that was just pushing Jesus forward past many of his contemporaries on the public scene in his day in Israel. And about the time that it looked like that wave had reached maximum power and was going to finally break over the whole nation where, where he would kind of coast into governmental power and he would begin to fulfill the, the political dreams and aspirations of some other people, political dreams and aspirations he himself never had, that wave suddenly just sort of dissipated. Many people left him. Many people who had said, oh, he's the next best thing, said he's yesterday's news. And they left him. Jesus was fine with the, the governmental thing not working out. He avoided it like the plague. He talked like he kind of knew, but still was disappointed that people who said they'd be with him forever kind of walked away. One day he went to his closest friends and he said, you going to leave me too? They said no, but you know. This whole thing was headed toward a conclusion that Jesus himself was very well aware of and was trying to prepare himself for. It was going to be his death, his crucifixion, uh, a horrible, horrible, sacrificial, painful, substitutionary death. And on his way there, he had this, this keen sense of the timeline. And at one point, he gathered his closest disciples and followers around him. And he, well, he did what, what we're going to read next. Laura, you grabbed my Bible for me, didn't you? Thanks. Take a look at uh, Luke's gospel, and I'd invite you to stand with me if you'd like to, in honor of the reading of God's word. Luke chapter 2, let's begin, sorry, Luke chapter 22, let's begin reading with verse 14, but before we do, we always ask, Lord, that you would come and shine the light of truth into our hearts and into our minds. Reading comprehension isn't the problem, it's spiritual discernment that we sometimes lack. So we pray that your spirit would guide us as we read, just as you guided those who wrote. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Luke chapter 22, beginning with verse 14. When the time came, Jesus and the apostles sat down together at the table. Jesus said, I've been very eager to eat this Passover meal with you before my suffering begins. For I tell you now that I won't eat this meal again until its meaning is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Then he took a cup of wine and gave thanks for it. Then he said, take this, share it among yourselves. 
For I will not drink wine again until the kingdom of God has come. He took some bread, gave thanks to God for it. Then he broke it in pieces and gave it to the disciples saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And after supper, he took another cup of wine and said, This cup is the new covenant between God and his people, an agreement confirmed with my blood, which is poured out as a sacrifice for you. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So Jesus has come to this big moment. It's, it's, the, the biggest moment is about to come, the whole arrest and crucifixion and, and, and being tortured to death. And, and the last thing that Jesus wants to do is to sit down and have a meal with his closest followers. He's going to do this. He's going to go pray. And then everything, all, all, you know, all, all of the feverish activity of that, that, that ultimate weekend in human history breaks loose. But before it, he says, I want to eat and I want to be close to you. And I want to tell you something. I want to tell you that I'm going to go, I'm going to go do something for you. But the going means that I'm going to go away. We will be physically separated from one another. And I want you to always remember me. What was it that Jesus was saying when he said, I want you to remember me? And and he kind of prescribed a a ceremonial meal for them to eat. What was the whole point? Was Jesus saying, I would really appreciate it if there would be a clinical recollection of an event and a person in your past. And once you have, in fact, had a memory of me, we're all good. Anybody here think that Jesus was saying, just please acknowledge the fact of my existence? No. Maybe Jesus meant a little bit more. Maybe Jesus was waxing sentimental at the time and, and, and thinking, I'm going to miss my friends, and boy, I sure hope they miss me. Uh, maybe Jesus was just being a little bit tenderhearted when he said, you know, please remember me. Don't forget me. Was Jesus, you think, really encouraging his followers then and all of his followers now to have an occasional sentimental moment in which we feel kind of syrupy on the inside toward him? I mean, I don't think there's anything in the world wrong with with our hearts being moved uh, to the place of a powerful emotion. But do we really think that as Jesus is speaking the last few words of instruction to his followers that he'd say, you know... Get a little tear in your eye once in a while, would you? I don't think so. I don't think so at all. I think that that well beyond recalling facts and well beyond having a few scheduled sentimental moments, Jesus was saying to his followers, I want you to remember me with a little uh, asterisk that denotes a footnote. Maybe the best way for us to understand this is to take a look back in American history. Um, are there any people here who grew up in Texas? Any Texans among us? No? Then let's talk about them, shall we? <laughs> Oops. Hi, Facebook and all you wonderful people in Texas. Um, Texas is a part of the United States, but was not always. I mean, neither was Idaho, right? We were all this collection that was slowly built over time. But if you know anything at all about the history of Texas, you know about the Battle of the Alamo. 
And if you don't know anything else about the Battle of the Alamo, what caused it, what was the effect of it, you know the slogan, which was, remember the Alamo. Now, listen, that we, we understand from, from our reading of history and maybe the development of a little bit of legend alongside it, that uh, we were not the first ones, nor were our history teachers, to come up with this slogan, remember the Alamo. You know who it was? It was the people of the great state of Texas who had survived. By the way, none of them were inside the Alamo. Right? You remember the story. But in the fight that, that, that drew to a fevered pitch there that day and, and brought about the death of so many Texans loyal to the then Republic of Texas and eventually to, to what would have been the United States, their death, however, uh, didn't, was not in vain, nor was it forgotten. And as the, the, battle that, the, the battles that followed the Battle of the Alamo were waged, and as they were planned, the Texans looked at each other and said, remember the Alamo. And they kind of shouted defiantly to the, uh, it, to the, the nation from which they were, they were seeking freedom, Mexico, and they looked at them and said, you better remember the Alamo, because we certainly do. And this next time, we are not going to go like those folks in the Alamo did. You will go down, you, you the enemy, you'll be saying one day, I wish those people would forget the Alamo. Because every time that they remember the Alamo, they, they, they find a strength and, and they get spurred into action. All of this you know, saber rattling and, 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 and braggadocio talking about how, how free Texas is and how great Texas is. As soon as they say, remember the Alamo, those people start loading their guns. Those people start mounting horses. Those people start pushing back against the, uh, against the powers that be. It seems like every time that they hear, remember the Alamo, they actually remember the Alamo and then they do something about it. If you knew any of what I just shared with you about the Alamo, I think you know or, or can very shortly know very well what Jesus meant, sort of, when he said, when you eat this meal, remember me. Not quiet, folded hands, remember me. Not simply a moment of meditation, but a, hey, load your gun. Hey, stand up in the stirrups. Hey, remember and let it fuel you to go and do something. What was it exactly that Jesus was hoping that people would remember, his followers? What was it exactly that he was hoping that we would remember that would stir something up in us and give us the fortitude to actually follow through on it and see the manifestation of his kingdom come? I think it's a good question. I'm going to try to answer it for you. If you, uh, if you look at... Luke, I'm going to skip ahead in the notes, okay? I'm going to go to... In the slides. I'm going to go to John chapter 6. I'm going to read a little bit to you. John chapter 6. You can turn there if you'd like as well. And start with verse 51. John chapter 6, verse 51. Jesus said, Sorry. 
I think I want to back up. Stay where you are, Luke. We'll just work from here. I tell you the truth. Anyone who believes has eternal life. I'm going to read that again. Because you need to feel it this morning instead of just let the fact lodge in your head. I tell you the truth. Anyone who believes in me has eternal life. Yes, I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate manna in the wilderness, but they all died. Did I skip ahead on you? Anyone who eats the bread from heaven, however, will never die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven, and anyone who eats this bread will live forever, and this bread which I will offer so the world may live is my flesh. Now look at verse 53. So Jesus said again, I tell you the truth. Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you cannot have eternal life within you. But anyone who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And I will raise that person at the last day. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. And anyone who eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in him. I live because of the living Father who sent me. In the same way, anyone who feeds on me will live because of me. I am the true bread that came down from heaven. Anyone who eats this bread will not die as your ancestors did, even though they ate manna, but will live forever. Hmm. Jesus, uh, considerably earlier in his ministry, as John paints the picture, has this moment where, where his, his wave of popularity is building. He's just fed 5,000 men plus all of the women and children, however many there were that came along, I don't know, 10, 15, 20,000-ish people. Uh, does it really need to be, be bigger than 5,000 for us to go, wow, Jesus, great miracle? I mean, for it to really capture uh, our attention and to paint the picture of how many people in the ancient world were, were, were just feverish to get a chance to connect with this guy and listen to him. It's at that point, at the zenith of his power, where he feeds people and they say, man, I could get on board with fresh fish sandwiches every day, that he pulls out this sermon and says, fish sandwiches? That'll only get you through the day. Don't you want something more than having to follow me around for fish sandwiches? I got something far better than that. I can give you something that, that, that addresses the, the, the core questions of who you are and what your tomorrow and all of your tomorrows will be like. I have something that I can give you that can address all the hurts of, of the past and of all of your yesterdays. I have something that I can give you that will give you peace in this moment, a sturdy, stable platform for you to push off of into your future. Would you like to have that instead of fish sandwiches? Do you know what the crowd said? Ah, just fish sandwiches. Jesus went ahead and, 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 and spelled it out for him, and, and in this metaphorical kind of fashion, he said, what I'm trying to give you is me. What I'm trying to give you is my life, spiritual life, the life of the God come to earth, put into one man, and now put into every man, woman, teen, and child who dares to believe this crazy claim. You can have the God life in you. If you got the God life in you, it'll carry you through. It'll get you past many, 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 many fish sandwiches. 
In fact, your body, uh, who knows what will happen to your body, but I know this, your spirit will never die. You'll be alive from this moment forward, and nobody will ever, ever, ever be able to take that away from you. Would you like some of that? I'm glad you said yes, because the crowd that day said no. They said, that's, that's crazy talk, Jesus. And it's too hard. We just wanted a fish sandwich. And they walked away from him. Jesus remembered it all throughout his ministry. And when, when he came then to the, that big moment, it didn't look so big to everybody because it wasn't public. It wasn't, it wasn't uh, on the news. It was in this tiny little room hidden away in, in the wall of the city of Jerusalem. And he said, guys, I want you to remember me. I want you to remember me. Alamo style, I want you to remember what I promised you because here shortly there are going to be bodies everywhere, starting with mine, shortly after some of yours. I want you to remember what I promised you is that if, is that if you, you eat and drink me, if you really will take me into you, you are really going to live. You will outlive your corpse. You'll outlive your persecutors. You will outlive the troubles of this world. You'll really live now. And nobody will ever be able to stop you. She said, I want, you to, I want to make sure you remember that. Alamo style. In fact, it's really important for us here today to get it because none of us remember the Alamo. We weren't there. And if you say remember the Alamo, half of our people will say, I remember renting a car from them at the airport one time. I mean, it never makes us do anything when we say, remember the Alamo. So apparently, that little slogan that worked great for Texans right on the heels of, of, uh, of, a, of an astonishing and ugly defeat, apparently, that's not good enough for us. Listen, folks, if you are going to remember Jesus as we take this meal and in the periods in between when we, when we eat this meal together... What he's actually calling us to do is to call to mind something from the past, an event, a moment from the past, pull it into the present, and re-enter it. And from there forward, step into the promise of it. Now, I want to illustrate this to you in a way to make sure that you understand how to live this. I want to go back to the Old Testament, okay? I know we're reading a lot of scripture today. I won't ever apologize for that, but I know it's more than usual. Let's go to Genesis chapter 9. Genesis chapter 9. Then God told Noah and his sons, I hereby confirm my covenant with you and your descendants and with all the animals that were on the boat with you, the birds, livestock, all the wild animals, every living creature on earth. Yes, I'm confirming my covenant with you. Never again will floodwaters kill all living creatures. Never again will a flood destroy the earth. Then God said, I'm giving you a sign of my covenant with you and with all living creatures for all generations to come. It's the sign of my covenant with you and with all the earth. When I send clouds over the earth, the rainbow will appear in the clouds, and I will remember my covenant with you and with all living creatures. Never again will all the floodwaters destroy all life. Now listen, this is God speaking. He says, when I see the rainbow in the clouds, I will remember the eternal covenant between God and every living creature on the earth. Hey, you thought he gave the rainbow as a reminder to you? Well, he did. But he gave it as a reminder for himself, too. He said, every time I see it, 
I am going to remember the, the, the relationship, the covenant, the promise that I made to you, 